Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast on ICE detainers, recent court decisions, and important developments. Today, we welcome Lena Graber, Special Projects Attorney at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. Lena has been involved in immigrant rights works for 10 years, focusing on enforcement and detention issues. She joined ILRC last year as Special Projects Attorney to lead ILRC's work on DACA services and trainings, as well as to contribute to their legal manuals and enforcement advocacy. Before ILRC, Lena was a Soros Justice Fellow at the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild, where she supported local campaigns against ICE detainers, provided training and education on the detention and deportation system, and litigated constitutional rights cases to ICE enforcement. And uh, previously at the National Immigration Forum, she also worked with border communities to improve accountability for human rights abuses by Border Patrol, and she contributed to the National Immigration Policy Advocacy and Reform efforts. Welcome, Lena. Hi, thank you. So let's start out with a brief introduction. What are detainers? So as many probably know, an immigration detainer, which is also called an ICE hold or an ICE detainer, immigration hold, whichever combination, um, is a message from ICE to a local jail that tells that jail that ICE is interested in some person in their custody and basically makes some requests. Would you please let ICE know before that person is due to be released? And would you hold that person for an extra 48 hours to give ICE time to come get them and deport them? Um, and while ICE, deta- ICE detainers are have been growing substantially in the last few years, uh, partly because of secure communities and also because of ICE's enforcement budget keeps growing and growing. And so ICE detainers have become a major or perhaps the biggest mechanism for ICE to apprehend people and to deport them. Thank you. And this is not without community resistance and response. Why don't you talk about some of the recent court decisions and local advocacy and how that has been changing the national picture on ICE detainers? Absolutely. So especially as ICE detainers have gone from something that happens sometimes to holding lots of people in jail beyond their sentences all over the country and being a major vehicle for deportations and family separations, uh, a lot of organizers all around the country have started pushing back on these. And over the last two or three years, we've passed probably 25-ish ordinances, uh, county policies, and in two state laws restricting when law enforcement will be allowed to hold someone for ICE on a detainer, uh, and that was all up through the last, uh, up through to the end of 2013. And at the same time, these issues are starting to percolate up through the federal courts because when you hold someone on a detainer past the time that they would otherwise be supposed to be released from jail, whether it's because they paid bail or their charges were dismissed or they served a sentence and they're done, for any reason that they are getting out, to hold them again is a new seizure, it's a new arrest. And so that implicates all of the constitutional protections um, that apply to an arrest, primarily in the Fourth Amendment, but also others. And so uh, those those issues have started to come through the courts. And so the first decisions, well, the first decision this year was in Morales versus Chadbourne. 
in Rhode Island. And the federal court, the federal district court of Rhode Island there looked at the detainer and said, this is not a basis for arrest. It's a facially invalid request. Um, and so that lawsuit was allowed to proceed. It was a motion to dismiss. So it didn't end the case. Um, but the court did say, you, Rhode Island, are at risk of being held liable for damages for holding this woman without probable cause in violation of the Fourth Amendment. So that was exciting, but that was just the beginning. A couple weeks later, or maybe a month, um, the Third Circuit, which is an appellate court, so uh, has much more impact than the District of Rhode Island, the Third Circuit ruled on, on one issue that had come out of a case called Galarza versus Salchik. Uh, in Galarza, the Third Circuit ruled definitively on a question that had been aggravating people all over the country for years, which is whether a, a, the detainer request to hold someone is mandatory on that local jail or voluntary. Do they choose whether or not to comply with ICE's request, or do they have to? Uh, and most law enforcement for years just assumed that it was a command that they were required. Uh, and gradually, organizers and lawyers convinced many that that was not the case, and that led to those 25 or so jurisdictions passing laws um, against them. But finally, the Third Circuit, in a very clear and definitive analysis, found that detainers are definitely not mandatory. It is absolutely up to the local jurisdiction whether or not to hold someone for ICE, and ICE, under the Tenth Amendment, is not allowed to command and compel state resources to enforce a federal program like immigration. And therefore, uh, a county that holds someone on an ICE detainer might be liable for unlawful detention if, there's no, if it's not compliant with the Fourth Amendment. Then, the real sort of uh, whipped cream on top was uh, the Federal District of Oregon in a case called Miranda Olivares versus Clackamas County not only agreed with Galarza and found that a detainer uh, was not mandatory, but they also said it's not a warrant and it doesn't provide probable cause. It's just an ICE investigatory tool, and it actually found Clackamas County liable for damages to a, the plaintiff, Miranda Olivares, for uh, holding her unlawfully in violation of the Fourth Amendment. And so that third case uh, really showed that a county could be held liable, not just sort of the issues were in place. Um, and, the, and so that really had a big impact on the behavior of other law enforcement. Okay, thank you. Just to backtrack a bit then, the federal district court decision in Rhode Island didn't go as far as the one in Oregon. In other words, it hasn't actually uh, made a, a finding but put the state on notice or the region on notice? That's right. And the difference is uh, the procedural posture. Uh, the decision in Morales versus Chad Mitburn was on a motion to dismiss. Um, so it just meant we find that the plaintiff made a good case here and we have to go on to discovery and figure out if you're liable. In Oregon, it was a summary judgment decision. So it was a final decision uh, based on these facts that we've decided are the record. You violated her rights. You are liable. Thank you. Now, is the decision in Oregon, is it uh, significant um, as a, you know an example or precedent for others to follow or emulate, or does it also cover geographically a, a large area? Um, it doesn't cover a particularly large area. It's not binding outside of Oregon for sure, and I'm not quite sure if there are other district, federal districts in Oregon at the moment. 
Um, but it's significant regardless, and there's two reasons. One other point that's important about these decisions is that Galarza and Morales were both uh, U.S. citizens held on ICE detainers, and ICE was a party to the lawsuit, a defendant, for illegally issuing a detainer on a U.S. citizen. Um, and that's significant because the courts also found that, yeah, at least in Galarza, ICE lacked probable cause also uh, to issue the detainer. But in Miranda Olivares, the decision actually never states what her immigration status is, and I don't know what it is. Uh, and that's important because it, she may be undocumented, she may be a permanent resident, she may be a citizen, I don't know. Um, but it means that it doesn't matter who you are or what your status is, if you're held unlawfully on a detainer, you still have the protection of the Fourth Amendment. But back to your question. Uh, the decision is not binding. None of these are binding other than the Third Circuit has slightly more force, so it's unquestionable that detainers are not mandatory in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and the Virgin Islands. Um, but the reasoning in them is very solid. And what that means is that other courts are going to look to that and say, hey, this decision totally makes sense. It could happen here. Um, and so there's a strong inkling, instinct from other courts to apply the same rules. And so people recognize that the court decisions don't directly order them to do something, um, but they're still reacting to the, the, the court's interpretation. Thank you. Now, have other circuits decided whether detainer requests are mandatory or voluntary? Um, yes and no. None of them quite as clearly as uh, Galarza just this February. So that is kind of the other, other courts have discussed detainers as merely requests or as requests for notice and not having anything to do with detention. And in fact, even the Supreme Court and Galarza suggest that maybe um, detainers are, were not meant to hold people beyond their sentence, but are just an information sharing mechanism between ICE and a jail. But that's, that's not necessarily settled law yet. Excellent. Thank you. So then, you know, given these three decisions, these three significant decisions, and uh, some of the local and state initiatives, how big is the impact of advocates so far? Well, um, pretty big so far. So I think uh, sheriffs, it's been mostly sheriffs because it depends on your state, but in probably the majority of states, sheriffs are responsible for running the county jail and even if someone is arrested by police, if they are charged with a crime, they're usually transferred over to the sheriff and then they might post bail or whatever. Um, but sheriffs are the one making, ones making the majority of decisions about will they comply with the detainer. And so it's been mostly about sheriffs, but some police departments also. Um, and in reaction to the decision and some of the letters that were sent out explaining the decisions, uh, more than 130 jurisdictions have announced that they will no longer hold people on ICE detainers. And those 130 jurisdictions are especially largely in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and California, but also in Kansas, Iowa, Minnesota, and uh, Pennsylvania. So these 130 jurisdictions, this is in addition to uh, communities that have legislated uh, a change in policy. Yeah, and the difference is that um, a lot of the pre-existing policies were uh, political fights, and so they didn't necessarily get all detainers dispensed with. They got some subset. 
some of the policies were similar that they said no detainers, but there was a, there was a range. Whereas for most of these ones since the court decision, um, it's pretty much a flat no detainer rule, although it gets complicated into what notice they will provide ICE, and there are other nuances about what other relationships they will have with ICE that, that may go on. Um, although ICE issues detainers and comes to pick people up, they are really, really, they have really deep and complex and uh, far-reaching programs and relationships with jails all over the country to make sure that they know who's there, that they have access, that they can interview people, that they get that the jails call them if they think someone is an immigrant. And so there's still a lot of work there in terms of a broader goal to have our local police and local law enforcement be about protecting the community, not serving ICE. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about how ICE is responding to some of these changes in, in policy and law. I, I don't really know. So some sheriffs have complained that they've asked ICE for guidance in response to these and that ICE hasn't really said very much. Um, it's been ICE's public position actually for a while that detainers were not mandatory. So even as some uh, local law enforcement were saying detainers are mandatory, ICE wasn't. That's not ICE's position. However, they have claimed in litigation that uh, they don't think detainers implicate the Fourth Amendment and don't require a probable cause because they're just kind of this stopgap uh, measure to give ICE time to investigate. Um, and whether they will stick to that as a nationwide policy or whether that's just a litigation position, I couldn't say. Um, there have been reports also that because the jails aren't holding people, ICE has to prioritize more carefully who they're going to pick up. They certainly have, both in reaction to the pre-court decision policies and more recently started showing up, you know, at the jails the minute people are released or at courthouses to get people who are coming to court for their hearing. Um, and so they do shift when and where they're showing up to apprehend people and deport them. And one of the things we're most concerned about especially is if jails are sharing information like home addresses of people that came through with ICE and then ICE goes to arrest them at home. Mm, so kind of a get around on the ICE hold is just sharing that information and then ICE proceeds the uh, same as it would except now it needs to go to someone's house instead of the local jail to pick somebody up. And they're certainly still going to the jails, um, but they have to be a little more precise and organized about their timing. And I'm, I'm, we'll see how how it develops. I mean, the the law enforcement that are no longer holding people on detainers, there's a real range of some are doing it because they don't want to be, you know, liable for unlawful detention, and that also combines with not wanting to hold people if it's unconstitutional. I mean, these are law enforcement. If that's the rule, that's the rule. And there, But there are a number of them that still want to help ICE as much as they can. And so they'll try to give them notice and say, these people are getting released now. And, you, and in many jails, I don't know how many across the country, I mean, ICE has an office across the street or a desk in the jail. So there's, it doesn't get us everywhere, but it's still a really exciting development. Yes. Now, I'm interested in 
what you said about ICE's legal arguments and their claim that it doesn't uh, implicate the Constitution. You mentioned at the beginning that it that an ICE hold is like a second seizure. Is that sort of the advocate's perspective, or is that widely accepted? I think that's pretty widely accepted. All of the courts are recognizing that if you hold someone beyond that, the time of release, that constitutes an arrest, um, and that comes from a Supreme Court decision in Illinois versus Gates, it's quite old, that, that led to that, that said, you know, prolonging an arrest beyond what's reasonable needs, needs to then comply with the Fourth Amendment. Um, I think ICE makes a few arguments about how they, maybe they only need a, maybe there's a different standard of proof that's lower than probable cause for an immigration arrest. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know exactly the nuances of what they're arguing in all of, in, in those cases. And I think it's probably changing over time, but they certainly, I don't think they can win that, but they're, they're holding on to it for the moment. Thank you. <laughs> so we have, uh, litigation and um, federal court decisions, as well as decisions by local sheriffs, whether on their own or persuaded by community advocates, and legislated changes in communities and a couple of states. Let's talk now about what advocates could be doing to change or improve law or policy in their own community. Sure. So, um, although the court decisions are public and fairly well known, uh, all those seven sheriffs in seven states didn't totally change their policies out of thin air. Um, and the main strategy has been a sort of coalition of local and statewide and national organizations sent letters to all of their sheriffs in their states saying, listen, there was this court decision in Oregon and it found that detainers are unconstitutional and that holding someone, you might be liable for damages and watch out, you're going to be sued for constitutional violations if you hold people for ICE. Um, and so just kind of a not very long letter explaining the legal and constitutional issues with maybe some policy reasons thrown in or not um, has had a big impact. And sheriffs have gone back to their legal counsel um, to review those decisions and see if they feel like that they should change their policy, and a lot of them have. Um, so the ACLU and the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project sent out a letter in Washington State. Um, I'm not sure who sent the one in Oregon. The ACLU in Endalon in uh, California sent a letter to all our sheriffs, the ILRC and the Asian Law Caucus and several the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and several others were involved in helping to draft it and weigh in on the legal issues and also follow up. Um, once you have an entity that has a good legal basis to, to send that letter saying, watch out, um, there's liability here for constitutional violations, then you need people to contact those sheriffs to build relationships and say, we're following up on this. Have you decided to change your policy? Did you look at our letter, uh, et cetera? Um, and so we have a whole team here in California uh, following up with sheriffs throughout the state um, and tracking where what they're doing with the with their ice hold policies. Excellent. So I have to ask: Are there any surprises? Are there any sheriffs who have made this decision in jurisdictions that you might not consider to be 
progressive or sympathetic to immigration-related issues? Yeah. Um, well, the ACLU in Kansas has gotten six counties, I believe, in Kansas to uh, acknowledge the Oregon decision and to say they're not going to hold anyone on ice holds, um, including, I was informed, one of them is where Chris Kobach is from. So that's that's one surprise. I think here in California, we've done really well in Southern California, where there are probably a significant proportion of all of the immigrants in the country live in the greater Los Angeles area. And um, L.A. County, Riverside County, um, all the big counties down there are no longer holding people for ICE, and that's pretty huge. Uh, so that doesn't mean that ICE isn't uh, finding people to deport down there, but uh, it's slowing things down, and it's changing the way that we talk about what ICE can do. Thank you. Can you tell us about where people could find more information and what are the resources if an advocate wants to partner with an organization or, or send a letter to sheriffs in their state? What What are some of the next steps? Where can people find information and what can they do? Absolutely. So we have a bunch of resources on our websites and other organizations do too, but I don't know them as well. Um, we have, first of all, a map just at ILRC.org slash enforcement. We have a map that has a mark for every no detainer or limiting detainer jurisdiction in the country. And you can click on the little balloons. And for those that we have gotten the written policy from and not just kind of an email, um, we have a link to their written policy. But otherwise, there's just a, a dot for all of those. Um, and it's And below that, are a couple of different advisories that we talk about um, in California. For, for First of all, before all these court decisions, we passed the Trust Act in California. And so we have a bunch of materials on that that may predate the court decisions, but still are applicable to understanding detainers and how l local law enforcement work um, and how they apply and also how ICE, all of ICE's programs in the jails. And then we have a short advisory uh, that I think we sent out on the EN network about um, just laying out the court decisions in in brief and linking to the letters that were sent in Washington and Colorado and California to law enforcement, which um, we're shortly coming out with a template for those for more community organizations that will just sort of, you can fill in your name and who you want to send it to and any obviously add anything else that you want to say. Um, so that should be up soon. And those are all on our website at ilrc.org slash enforcement. Thank you. So an organization or even a detention project attorney does not have to be a constitutional expert or ready to litigate in federal court. They can check out some of these resources and maybe partner with a local or statewide ACLU to inform sheriffs in their jurisdiction uh, what are the risks and why they might want to change their policy. Absolutely. Thank you very much to Lena Graber, Special Projects Attorney at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, for her time today and expertise. Thank you very much.